Money, toys, guns, and women. This is the world of Instagram king Dan Bilzerian. What do you think led to your Instagram taking off? Probably just because I was doing all the stuff that an 18-year-old kid would do if he just got handed a blank check. Son of a multi-millionaire businessman, Dan built up his own fortune on the professional poker tour and fostered a wild lifestyle that would bring on two heart attacks by age 25. I never used Viagra before. And the doctor's like, how much did you take? I'm like, 200 milligrams. He's like, holy When he's not documenting his outrageous sex life or conquering a high-stakes bike ride from Vegas to LA with the help of Lance Armstrong, he's developing plans to lead the pack in social media advertising and the growing marijuana business. I want to be the Coca-Cola of the weed industry. The infamous social media phenomenon coming up right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. All right, so we're here at your house, um, and you got to help explain to me first the schedule in which you uh, operate on, because we were talking on the phone, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago or whatever it was, and you told me you don't wake up till noon. Yeah. I'm like, what do you? Who doesn't wake up till noon? And <laughs> so today, today, I don't think even, today, today we're going to start the interview at noon, and you wake up till one. Yeah, yeah, no, I, um, yeah. So I've, <laughs> I have a little bit of a messed up schedule. Part of that's like gambling, a little bit lifestyle. But my whole thing is I just like really want to get eight hours of sleep every night if I can. I mean, I usually don't, but like at least seven, six or seven. And so for me, I found that it's just better to just go to bed at a, you know, regular time. And then, you know, your body gets in kind of this biorhythm of, you know, sleep pattern. And uh, so for me, it was just better just to push it back as opposed to just trying to sleep in. Because if you're if you're a guy that, you know, every day you wake up at, you know, nine o'clock or eight o'clock or whatever, to, for I guess for a normal person, it's like six. But anyway, so if you wake up at six every morning and you just go out and you go to a club or you're partying or whatever till, you know, five, if you go to sleep, like chances are you're not gonna get like eight hours. And even if you do, it's not like quality sleep and your body's, you know, schedule's fucked up. And a lot of people just wake up every day at, you know, a certain time. So for me, I just, pushed it back so when do you typically go to bed like four or five i think so what do you like what do you typically do till four or five like like last night or this morning what last were you doing night till i was gambling and having sex shockingly <laughs> but uh <laughs> normally you know the last six months I, i've been kind of like doing some other stuff but yeah like, like was, what um well i'm opening a weed dispenser here right. and i uh, just i don't feel like there's a real brand in the marijuana space so i kind of want to like establish the first actual brand and there's a lot of inconsistency too like you know certain um edibles are dosed at you know they say 10 but they're really you know five and so people kind of like you know get used to taking you know whatever they think they're taking and they take another one that's actually correctly dosed and then they're on the moon so for me i kind of want to make something that's consistent and you know a better product and kind of like brand it and i think that'll be um big business so I want to take you to poker, which is how I think one of the early ways you started really making a name for yourself. Um, how did you learn to play in the first place? Um, my little brother taught me how to play, and uh, I was, oh, Jesus, like 2003, just got out of the military, and uh, he, you know, I was getting the GI Bill, and the uh, VA was paying me, and I was getting grants and everything for uh, for school, and so I was making pretty good money for a college student. My brother wanted to tap into that, so he taught me how to play poker so that he could, you know, play me heads up and beat me for some of the money. <laughs> so, you know, he did that for a while, and then I started playing online, and uh, actually ended up going broke uh, my sophomore year, and then... How did you go broke? 
I just, well, some of it was I'd come home drunk and I'd play and just blast the account out. And then, so I, I, I figured out that like by Friday I had to have all the money out of my account. And also I was playing definitely too aggressively. I was trying to bluff, I was trying to win every, every pot. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the combination of, uh, the drinking and, uh, just, trying to win every hand so I like I went like flat broke my sophomore year and I actually had to like sell three of my guns um and then I took that money went and like played on this gambling boat I lived in this or like stayed in this flea bag hotel and like would take a take a boat to the boat because it had to be in international waters and then I would you know play there and I turned that 750 bucks into 10,000 and then flew to Bellagio got like a one-way ticket to uh to Vegas and played for three weeks turned that into 187,000 and and kind of like didn't look back at that point like i just like realized like i never want to go broke again this right. is like super shitty. and i had built up enough money where i had a little bit of a cushion um and then i had figured out the discipline because i was like okay like this is you know once once i was like you know back against the wall then i had to like play correctly um and i'd also built up a reputation for a guy that you know played super crazy so I was in a good position because people were going to call me a lot. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just waited till I had a good hand and then bet. So I just tightened up my game, but I got paid off in spots that other people wouldn't get paid off in. Um, and everybody had me like tagged online, you know, cause you could put, you could like make notes. So everybody like had me tagged as like, you know, this complete maniac. And yeah. I know that because my roommate was like this conservative Chinese guy who would play on my account and be like, I can't believe like how much money I've went on your account. Like nobody folds to me like ever. And um, so, you know, when I came back and I started playing like a little bit more conservatively, it was uh, definitely a lot easier to win. Going broke, what financial lessons do you think that taught you? There's a good quote. Uh, People are honest as long as they can afford to be. Um, I think Benny Binion said that. And it just, you, you kind of like realize like when you actually go broke that there's like a sense of like desperation and it's, you know, it's a little bit of a scary feeling and a lot of, you know, rich people, like they don't ever understand that, you know, so they look at, you know, some guy that robs a liquor store is, you know, oh, that guy's a, you know, total scumbag and, you know, this and that. But like, you know, if a guy might have like, you know, had to feed his family or something and, you know, that was like, you know, he tried to get a job, he couldn't get a job. I don't know. I'm not saying that it's like right to rob a liquor store, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it just gave me like a little bit of a perspective as to like, okay. You know, when you're broke, you just, you know, you think a little bit differently. Like for me, like I sold three of my guns. Like I never would have sold my guns. I fucking love my guns. But, you know, like it drove me to do that. So. Yeah, I mean, outside of that, what did you do differently to kind of avoid that happening again? I don't know. I still wasn't very risk averse. Uh, I still <laughs> definitely took a lot of risk, um, probably more than I should have. Like I was like in debt too. Like I'd like, you know, uh, I guess I'd mortgage my car or whatever that is um so i like owed money on the car too mm-hmm. so it's like not only was i like broke but like i owed money um and it was just a shitty feeling so that's just kind of like in the back of your mind a little bit um which is helpful for me because in poker it's tough like it's tough to i don't know it's tough to like even manage your money because you don't know like you could go out and you could play great and you could still lose you mm-hmm. know like you get your money in with the best hand and just get unlucky like that right. stuff happens in poker so it's not like a typical job where you can you know say okay i'm gonna go to work and i'm gonna make x amount of money and you know and i and you know just because you have you know a million dollars or 10 million or you know fifty thousand or whatever you have in the bank from poker like that doesn't mean that like you have that money because you have to allocate a certain amount to actually play with so 
Money management's a big part of it. You know, I've seen a lot of guys that, you know, have, you know, played poker for a long period of time with a very small amount of money. And I've seen a lot of guys that have made, you know, tens of millions of dollars and gone broke just because um, just bad money management. So, so you're, you're dead broke. What do your friends or family say when you call them and tell them this, whether it's your brother or your parents? It, it wasn't good. I mean, my dad was basically kind of like, you, you know, now I was like, you know, asking for money and he said no. Really? Yeah. Like, take, take me through, like, what you remember from, like, that phone call. You know, my dad was, like, really against gambling because his only uh, interactions with gambling was, you know, blackjack. So kind of with blackjack, the longer you play, you know, unless you're some great card counter or whatever, like, you're just going to lose money. Right. So for him, he didn't really see, like, he, he always, like, looked at poker like he did blackjack, and he would tell me, he's like, okay, like, you know, I'd be like, hey, Dad, you know, I won, you know, or I'm, I'm up $3 million or, you know, whatever it was, you know, in this poker game. And he'd be like, okay, stop, you know, take the money, you know, like, like cash out, cash out. You know, that was always, like, his right. his advice. And I'm just like, well, you know, he's like, he's like, you know, when I, you know, he'd always go back to his blackjack thing, and I just, like, had to, like, one day, like, just grab him and be like, listen, this is not blackjack like this is not the same you know mm -hmm. poker like it doesn't stop like if you're a professional poker player like there isn't like it's not like you take your money and you go like you're gonna play again and you're gonna play again and you're gonna play again so when you're winning that's not the time to leave because if you're winning somebody else has to be losing first of all you're gonna play better when you're winning and second of all they're gonna play worse when they're losing so that's the last time that you should leave you know like if you want to cut your losses and if you lose a few hands or a few buy-ins or whatever it is and you want to leave because you're not you know mentally in the in the best place and you're you know your competition's probably doing better because they're winning and they're gonna make better decisions with more level-headed um you know mindset then you know you could take off then but to leave when you're winning is usually like kind of a bad idea so i don't know a lot of people just don't get that there's a lot of things to you know poker and gambling that people don't understand and it's just funny because along the way you know as i'd win you know money he'd always be like okay you know stop playing poker you know right. stop playing poker and now at least i get to you know, go back and, you know, tell them, okay, like if I would have listened to you, you know, you would have cost me 50 million that year, you know what I mean? Or whatever, you know, so right. it's, uh, you know, at least I get to finally have an I told you so on my side. So you won 10.8 million in a night once, you've lost 3.6 million um, on three different occasions. How about the most you've ever won or lost? Um, I, this, I think it was like 12.8, but it was over a period of, three games we just kind of like, won or lost i won okay. yeah like i played and then we just left the money on the table and you know we played again and left the money on the table and yeah it was it was a pretty crazy one i'll never forget it because i was sitting there and i had i was i think i, had, I was sitting with like over 18 million because i had bought in for some money and i was just I was, I was up to 12 but i had you know other money that i'd bought in and i think i'd actually lost initially so then i rebought and i just remember distinctly having 18 million dollars in front of me and we're playing no limit hold them and we're playing heads up and the blinds were ten thousand twenty five thousand dollars so it's you know a real big game and at any given point this guy you know and he's a maniac he's a billionaire so at any point if this guy says all in i got to make a decision for 18 million dollars you know so that to me was like probably one of the most stressful um, periods of time. Can you say who the billionaire was that you're playing against? I mean, I could, but I'd rather not, you know? Okay. Um, so he's not like a famous guy or anything. Okay. He's just, you know, a rich guy. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I think like I had like a little bit of hair fall out. <laughs> I was just like, and like legitimately though, yeah. you've had hair fall out before when. You've well, been I, yeah, no, playing. I noticed it. Like, yeah, like through like periods of like extreme stress, like I'd like take a shower and like run. I mean, I got tons of hair, so I didn't notice it. But like, I would run my hand through my hair, and like actually hair fell out. Um, but like I said, that 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 one session because. Like one of the things that he would do sometimes when he would bluff is, you know, there'd be, you know, whatever, $2 million, $5 million in the pot or, you know, whatever was in the pot. Or maybe it was even a million or something. This guy, one of his MOs was if there was, I don't know, 500000 bucks in the pot or, you know, maybe a million bucks or whatever. Like he would just go all in on the river sometimes for just like seven, eight million dollars. Like that yeah. was like his thing. Because he always had me covered. So his thing was like he didn't even rebuy chips. He just, you know... Whatever I had, he had. So he just, you know, he basically bought in for a hundred million or whatever. What you know what I mean? Like he just always had me covered. So no matter what amount of money I had, if he said all in, I have to make a decision for all of it. Right. Um, so, you know, it was just like a, you know, kind of a crazy time. Um, in all the time you've gambled, are you up or down overall? Oh, I'm up a lot. Yeah, no, a ton for sure. I mean, I like. My yeah, my I mean I, my big losses were three point six million, so that was the most. After a night like that, what are you thinking? I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to say because I remember one time I lost three point six and I wasn't that upset, and then there's been other times when I've lost like fifty thousand that I've been like just super pissed. Um, and it depends on how much you swing during the game and then your competition, right? That's a big piece of it. Also, like, the stakes that you're playing. Like, you, you know, what if I'm playing, like, a small game and I just, like, lose, 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 lose throughout the whole night? Like, that would, like, really piss me off. Um, or if I'm playing in a game where, and this has happened before, where basically all the money that I've lost is pretty much all the money on the table. So I'd have to bust like every person to get even. Um, so that's kind of a frustrating feeling. What are you thinking um, about that makes it stressful for you? Well, you try not to, right? I mean, like you try not to think like, oh, I just lost a mansion in Bel Air, you know what I mean? Or whatever. I just, you know, oh, he just beat me for a Bugatti or LaFerrari. You know, you try not to think about it in terms of like real money. You know, like I could have bought a, you know, plane or, you know, oh, I lost this. So, you know, I. You there know. was a guy you played with, though, that would only bet in planes and cars, right? Well, actually, it was the same guy, that, that crazy billionaire. So it was just one time and it was like my girlfriend was there and his girlfriend was there. And I don't know why he did it. Maybe it was just to f with me or whatever it was. But he just decided that for an hour he wasn't going to look at his cards and. And, uh, and he's just, you know, he's betting without looking at his cards. At the end, he'd look at his cards. So, you know, you can't read somebody that doesn't know what the f they have. But, yeah, then he decided that he wanted to start betting in, like, um, physical things, like, you know, a Mercedes or a Ferrari or whatever. And I mean, is it, like, fun? Or are you thinking, like, this guy's an idiot just trying to show off for his girlfriend? Or, like, what like what are you? No, I mean, like, well, no, it legitimately worked. It kind of messed me up a little bit because, like, you know, normally it's just chips. And that's kind of, like, the genius that the casino came up with is, like, they make these little plastic chips. It's worth $100,000. And, you know, one thing I noticed, because back in the day when you played poker, especially at Bellagio or Aria or wherever it was, you could literally have bricks of cash in front of you. So people would have hundreds of thousand dollars in bricks and you know i just remember like you know a guy chucking a brick of 100 grand into the pot you know and be like i bet 100 grand and like you're looking at this cash and you're like 
fuck, you know, like, that's a lot of money. Right. But then there's like, there's a chip that's this big, that's a hundred grand, you know, and they'd throw it in and it just didn't have that same effect. Yeah, it was just like, I mean, it was, I, I think he was just messing around. He didn't care about the money. And, but it was just one of those things that, you know, I remember at the time distinctly, like mentally kind of like taking me off my game a little bit. How do you find out about the high stakes games? So that was kind of my thing about poker, right? Is like, I, I never want to be the best poker player. I just wanted to play against like super rich guys that weren't very good. So a lot of these guys coming up, they wanted to be, you know, known as the best player. I didn't like ever really care about being known as the best player. Like for me, I, I didn't mind people thinking that I was a, like a rich trust fund kid and that helped me get into really good games. Why have you said the high of winning is unable to match the low of losing? I don't know. I mean, it, it kind of like progressed um, more towards that because I think in the beginning, like the high was pretty good with winning because I like, I remember in college, like winning money and be like, oh, shit, I can go buy a motorcycle. And that was like a real thing. And right. like, oh, I'm going to like, and I actually use the money. Like I went out and bought a plasma TV and I got a Range Rover. And like, those were all things that at the time, like those, like, you know, they move the incremental like happiness, you know, uh, benchmark up. And like later on when you have, you know, most of the shit that you want, then when you win or lose, you know, whatever it is, 50,000, 100,000, it doesn't change your life. So you don't really get that happy. But then when you lose, you view it as like, okay, like I just lost whatever. And you kind of got to like meet your emotion a little bit in poker because um, if you're, if you're winning a bunch of money and you're like internally celebrating, then you lose some of that back, you're not going to be playing quite as level headed. And that's, that's really like one of the big things with poker is to be not what they call on tilt. So it's kind of like to keep a even keel. And in order to do that, you kind of have to like try and remove emotion from the game. So when you're losing, you have to try and not care. When you're winning, you have to kind of like not internally celebrate. Um, and so I think some of that carries over into your personal life too because you've muted your emotions for so long that it's like harder to get happy really yeah i think and so you found that to be the case for you yeah. like like in what ways well just you know i'll give you an example go to go to a casino and when you hear the mother screaming and yelling and celebrating i promise you that guy's not betting more than a couple hundred bucks a hand and you'll watch a guy win fifty thousand a hand he won't say a word you barely crack a smile if he does yeah you know so it's kind of like just one of those things where um i don't know I, after you do it for a while or when you're doing it on a high level i just think i mean but in your personal life uh like away from playing you found it's harder to get like happy so for me it's it's tough because if you know for my personal life right like the bar is raised up pretty high so if I don't have the nicest stuff, then I'm not satisfied. And so that kind of like, I think plays a part in it too. So I have to have the best food, I have to have the best cars, just to kind of like, you know, like for you, right? Like, let's, let's say you're a guy from, you know, Idaho, and you know, you have a Mustang. Mm -hmm. Then if you get a shitty car, you're gonna be unhappy, right? Because right. you own a Mustang, you drive that every day, and that's, you know, and at first you were happy with it, and now it's just like, you know, what you're used to. So if I give you some shitty Buick, you're gonna be upset. But, you know, a guy that, you know, doesn't have a car, you know, is gonna be happy with the Buick, and a guy that's been driving around a BMW, if you give him a brand new Mustang, you know what I'm saying? Right. So it's kinda like, but once you get to the highest level of that stuff, then, and there's nowhere to go, there's no better stuff, 
and you're discontent with it, you're the same as the guy driving the Mustang. You, got, you have the same feeling about your vehicle, you know, maybe even less because you're so, you know, it's the same as the guy that's driving a Mustang for 10 years. Right. So I guess that's kind of like where I'm going with that is like perspective is a big piece. What about the NBA player who you knew that would go on 24-hour benders that would cause you to bet against the games he played in um yeah i mean there's been some guys that have lost staggering amounts of money i think one guy lost like 12 million bucks um in in a game like in or in a night not in one night but i think over the course of like not that many games okay Uh, who oh man i really don't want to give names it's just Oh, come Bad. on. I, I can't I can't do it. Okay. I don't know. I mean, these guys could probably lose contracts and stuff. I just, yeah, I can't. So, but current can't players. Can't be a name dropper. Yeah, no, like big, like big player. You know what I mean? Like big, big player. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, like, and, and, it, and it wasn't even the losses, right? Like, I, we would just bet against him because he'd be playing for 24 hours straight, and it's just, like, really bad. Like, I remember, like, Manny Pacquiao would be playing for, like, 40 hours sometimes, you know? So, it's like... I actually like really, really wanted to fire on that Mayweather fight when he fought Mayweather. And actually, I, I went to the fight and I was so close to just, you know, I mean, not like a crowd. I was going to bet two million on Mayweather. And I was like, I was like down there and I like and I called Bobby Baldwin, who's the, the CEO of Aria. And he approved the bet because like normally I would, wouldn't have been able to bet that much. He approved it. And I was literally going to go do it. And the only reason I didn't was like in the back of my mind, I was like, you know what? If Mayweather loses this fight, he gets a billion dollars. That was like the only reason, because you know, if he loses that, like he's getting what, 150 million plus some pay-per-view, he loses that fight, he's guaranteed a rematch. That rematch is then gonna probably pay him, you know, 250 million. Mm-hmm. And then if and then if he wins that, that third one, God knows how much that's gonna mm-hmm. pay him. So I'm just like looking at this, I'm like, okay, like best case scenario for this guy is he actually loses the fight because he gets a billion dollars. Like granted <laughs> his legacy has a little bit of a tarnish. Right. He's got one loss, but he still beats the guy twice and he's the champ. And now he's, you know, worth over a billion dollars. But I just, I hate laying those big odds. Um, Cause I, in fact, like I bet this guy, Bill, I told him I bet him 5 million that I could row a boat across the Atlantic right. Ocean. And he turned around and said um, that he thinks that he could do it with like the best rower in the world or something. And it was like 30 days, I think it was. And I was like, I'll lay you 10 to one. So I ended up laying him like a half a million dollars to his 50,000. And he went out and found like some guy that was just like in total beast Mm -hmm. and like actually like might've been able to do it. And they like plotted this course. I talked to the guy on the phone and the guy was like super confident. And he was like, oh, I think I'm 50% to do this. And like when I made the bet, like the world record, I think was like 36 days or something, right? Or 33 days, I forget what it was. And it was like with, I think it was like with a, one was a six-man team, and I think the other one was, like, with a two-person team, and this guy to do it solo, whatever it was. But it was, like, yeah. you know, it shouldn't have been able to be done. But, like, this guy, you know, he decided to, you know, this is a perfect example of, you know, the things that people don't consider in these bets. Is like, this guy was able to construct, like, a super light boat. He only put enough food rations on there for 30 days um, because, like, most of these people, like, you know, they put on the stuff for 60 days because they just want to complete it no matter what. Right. This guy, if he didn't make it by 30 days, he was, you know, taken off. 
So there's like a lot of little things and he like constructed like a three hull boat that was like for racing where if it like flipped over, he loses. But you know, so a normal guy wouldn't construct a boat like that. But this guy, since he was like strictly doing it for the bet and trying to win the world record, he did. So there's just like all these factors, yeah. you know, cause on the outside looking in, it's like, okay, the world record's 36 days. This guy's got, you know, like he's just doing it by himself. Like he shouldn't be able to do it. But like when all this stuff started like coming together, I'm just like, this guy might be able to do it. And so I actually ended up buying out because I was like, God, the last thing I want to do is be sweating for 30 days. This guy rowing across the ocean and like have to be like checking the GPS reports and not being able to sleep at night. Wait, why would you be? Because I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I'd just be, you know, like, because, you know, I'd be sweating the bet. Like, you know, it's half a million bucks. Like, I'd just be like, curious. But that's not even a big bet for you. It, but it's just like, I don't know. The, well, I mean, it's still half a million bucks. Okay. Like, I'd be, you know, I don't know. I mean, if I bet a half a million dollars on a football game, I'd be watching that football game, right. you know? Like, so, I don't know. I, like, like I could, I'd flip the quarter for, you know, six million bucks, you know what I mean? But it was like, quick. It's like, done. You know, you don't have to sweat. Like, for me, I don't want to, like, have to, like, sweat for, you know, 30 days. Out, uh, flipping a quarter for six million I'm bucks. Lost. But at least those are the billionaire guys, so. How, how much did you lose? Well, it was, it was, uh, th- it was actually like 3.3 million a piece. So like in the, the quarter, the flip was for six. So we both put in three points. It was like 6.6 or something. So you lost $3 million. Yeah. The in the flip. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was at the end of a session. I had like, I think I had like an, it was like an odd amount of money. Like I had like, I don't know. I don't remember. I think I, I think it was the night that I had like. I don't remember, but it was like an like it was like that it was like the extra money that I had, or maybe I was uh, that's what I was up. I forget what it was, but it was just like ah, fuck, I'll flip you a quarter for it or whatever. I don't think he wanted me to leave. I think that's what it was. And I was like, oh, I'm only up three million bucks, like whatever, you know what I mean? I'll flip you for it if you want. You know, How did you feel after that? I was like, whatever, fuck, you know. What do you think led to your Instagram taking off? Um, that was. I don't know. That was a strange course of events. I, it was probably just because I was doing all the stuff that a 18 year old kid would do if he just got handed a blank check, you know? So I think there's like some appeal to that. And, um, I mean, obviously the hot chicks and all the toys and all the bullshit and all the stuff that I want to get. I don't know. I mean, it's like, it was a pretty interesting journey. I mean, but do you think like you were an early adapter or, or like what, I mean, a, a, anything beyond the lifestyle or I mean, I don't do know. There, there's just like not a lot of guys that have real money. that can do that kind of mm-hmm. stuff um, because they got a family or they got kids or right. they just like, don't want people to know about it. You know, like there's all these guys in Silicon Valley that have like a billion dollars in the bank that are driving around in a Prius, you know, and living modestly. And, you know, like that's just kind of like, cause with money comes a lot of like headaches, you know, everybody's like, hitting you up, everybody's got a great idea, everybody's got a pitch, and you don't know who your real friends are, and it's hard to find, you know, girls that are there for the right reason. I mean, I get it, you know what I mean? I get what these guys do. It's just like, for me, I didn't, I'm just gonna do all the stuff that I wanna do. (laughs) How how do you determine what to post? Um, well, I guess a piece of it is like, I try not to be repetitive, like trying to post the same Um, I try and just like, I try and get candid stuff. I kind of like try and treat it like a doc, um, a diary, kind of like a 
documentary of what I'm doing. Like, it, it actually helps me because I'm just like, oh, like, when did I go to Burning Man? I look at the Instagram. It's like, okay, I was there then, you know? Or like, when did I go to Bali? It's like, okay, that's when I win. When did I, when did I make the bet that I couldn't have sex with my ex-girlfriend for 600 grand for a year? You know, oh, I made it. Wait, on, go back to that one? <laughs> yeah, my buddy bet me 600,000. I couldn't go a year without having sex with my ex-girlfriend. She had like pissed him off, so he didn't like her. Uh-huh. And so this was like his way to like remove, remove her from my life. I want to go back to Instagram uh, momentarily. How often do you post something that you later have to take down? You know, rarely. I mean, I, I have before for sure. Um, but usually like before I post a picture, I'll always be like, okay, like, you know, you know, you want me to put this up, you know, right. you want to be tagged, you know, they say they don't want me to put the picture up. Like I don't put the picture up. Yep. Like I want to, you know, a lot of times like these girls have boyfriends or whatever. So like, there's been tons of stuff that, you know, we've captured that we haven't posted and um, How about the most outrageous picture, in your opinion, over the years that's made it to your Instagram? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There's one where I was like in the theater with a bunch of naked chicks, um, you know, post orgy. That was probably outrageous. So how had the picture happen? This is not like a regular thing. You know what I mean? Because this is like what happened that night. I don't know. Okay. I mean, one of the things that I usually do is I create situations where I'm, you know, one of the few guys around. So it's kind of like, if they want to get laid, I'm the guy. You know, I'm not like the, I'm not like the hit on girls guy. You know, I don't like, you know, I don't like, you know, I'm, I'm not like the guy that aggressively goes up and buys a bunch of drinks at the bar and tries to get them drunk and offers them trips around the world and tells them I'm going to date them. I don't do any of that shit, you know. So I, I just kind of set up my life to where, you know, girls that are into me come after me. And that, to me, is more appealing anyways because for me, a big turn-on is a girl that's into me because women have different attraction mechanisms. It's just, for me, the appeal is that a girl's into me, so... Try and, you know, or, you know, last man standing, that works too. <laughs> you know? um, what about going to Cannes made you realize how famous you'd become? Um, that, you know, it's funny. That was actually the, you know, that was the tipping point. I was over there and this was, I think, 2014, kind of when I was starting to blow up. But I only had like 2 million followers at the time. It wasn't anything crazy. Um, and I just remember I was talking to Ron Perlman's manager came over and said, Hey, like, you know, Ron wanted to talk to you at a, you know, a movie project or whatever. And he came over and it was a cool project and we were talking and people kept coming up and asking for photos. And, um, and I think part of it too, was that like when, when the first person comes up and asks for a photo, then other people notice. Right. So I think like it was a little bit skewed. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It was still crazy over there, but this was like every 30 seconds, like somebody's coming up yeah. and like interrupting him and you know, like, Hey, you know, can we have a picture? So, you know, kind of like, yeah, I, you know, I was just like, wow, this is crazy. I'm like in a foreign country and all these people are asking to take a picture of me and I'm sitting next to a movie star They're coming up and asking for pictures of me. I'm just like, what the f-? you know? Right. And I think he was like, what the f-? And there was like, you know, finally somebody came up and asked him for a picture and you know, he made a joke. He's like, oh, like you want a picture of me? Sure you don't want a picture of me. And he was kidding. He was a super cool guy. Yeah. But I, you know, I was like ready to say the same thing. I was like, this is so crazy, you know? And, um, you know, it's funny because the whole conversation we didn't even like mention it. It was like, you know, we were like focused on the thing and he never brought it up until then. But yeah, that was just the point when I was like, wow, this is like a real thing. Like I, I'm going to travel around the world and have people coming up and asking me for pictures now. What do you think of director Michael Bay? Um, I, I don't know. I, I never met the guy. Uh, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. He makes good movies. I mean, what's the, he was, uh, 
bugging every oh, person no, you posted I, on I don't know Instagram? If he's I mean, he just like hit up a lot of the chicks that I posted. He, you know, he's just like an example of, you know, a guy who like, you know, clearly like followed my stuff. How do you find out about him contacting? The girls would just tell me. Yeah, they'd be like, like what do they say? Well, just show me his DM be like, hey, you know, this guy hit me up. Like, this guy hits me up every time you post, or this guy's hit me up twice, both times when you posted me. And I had like a few <laughs> girls say that. So I was like, okay, well, clearly there's a correlation here, you know? Unless he's just hitting up everybody. I don't know. Maybe he might not even be running his own account. I don't know. You know, who knows? A lot, of these, a lot of these guys have handlers, you know, they got guys that just hit up girls for him. So it might not even be him. I don't know. So what's the pitch to the girl? You can be part of this lifestyle. I don't give a pitch at all. And I enjoy your company, no. but I'm going to like, have sex with other people too? That's the thing is like, I don't pitch them. I'm just like, this is, you know, I mean, they, they just, I mean, this is who I am. And you know, if you want to hang out, cool. And like m my view on relationships is kind of like they're best when it's like, you know, I want to hang out with the girl and the girl wants to hang out with me and we just hang out because we enjoy each other's company and we want to do it. Not because we're like obligated because we're in a relationship or, you know, because, you know, I ha you know, it's like we've been dating and she wants to do movie night and I have to go do that. It's like, no, like I don't do any of that bullshit. Like if I want to hang out with her and she wants to hang out with me, then we hang out. And if I'm doing something cool and I want to bring a bunch of girls and they want to come, then good. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's real casual for me. I'm like, look, this is, you know, my life. And I'm not saying that one day it might not change, but this is where I'm at right now. I'm not planning on changing. And you so know, like, what, like what will you specifically say when you very clearly realize the girl who you've been seeing for a while is going in a direction you don't want to go? Um... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a tough conversation. It's a conversation I've had a lot of times. It's like, look, this is, you know, what I want to do. I don't want to lie about, you know, what I do or who I hang out with or whatever. So, like, if you're not okay with it, it's probably better that we break up because, I, you know, I don't plan on changing. So, I think a lot of them, you know, and, and a lot of times, like, they'll say, oh, you know, did you have sex with that girl last night? And I'll say, yeah, I did. Um, and I think there's, like, a part of it that's, you know, that's, that's tough for them to hear and they hate it. But then there's another part that like, they can appreciate the honesty and it's very rare. Like it's very rare in this world because a lot of people will, you know, tell lies to, you know, protect other people's feelings or, you know, just to make it easier because of the easy way out. But the way you actually build trust, like, I mean, for me anyways, you know, uh, you know, I don't know how other people do it, but for me, the way I build trust is somebody tells me something that I know I, that I know that they know that I don't want to hear. Right. Like if I ask, you know, my girlfriend, like, Hey, you know, you know, did you, you know, how, how many guys have you had sex with? And she tells me, you know, 78, like, I'm gonna be pretty sure that she's telling me the truth, right? Cause it's not like usually a number that you want to hear. Like, not that I'm like, you know, talking to girls that slept with 78 guys. But the point is that, you know, or, or for instance, if, if I ask them like, you know, Hey, um, you know, what did you do last week? And they say, Oh, I had sex with two guys. Well, I'm like, I mean, unless she's saying that to like make me jealous, like I'm going to know that she's telling me the truth because that's not something that somebody would lie about. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, you know, in, in the same way when she asked me like, oh, do you have sex with this girl? And I say, yes. Like now I feel like she knows that she can trust me more because it's like, okay, well, you know, what's he going to lie about if he said yes to that? So I think there's like some appeal in the honesty. You've had two long-term relationships, a three-year and uh, a five-year similar conversations with those? No, or was... no, the three-year was monogamous, actually. Three years of monogamous. Um, and the five-year was, um, it actually started on the tail end of like a um, four-month relationship that I had ended. Um, 
and I told her straight away from the beginning, I was like, look, you know, don't want a monogamous relationship. Um, I mean, yeah, it was, it was pretty clear, you know. Um, she was a cool chick, and, um, you know, people get, I mean, girls get feelings the way it, you know, the way it happened. Not that I didn't get feelings, too, but I just, for me, I was doing my thing, and I, you know, I was able to live like a rock star, and that was kind of cool for me, you know, because I was, as a kid, that was, you know, one of the things. Like, I, I wanted to be like... Tommy Lee and Motley Crue, you know, and that sounded so appealing. Um, so, you know, I had this like moment in time where I was just like, you know, I was, you know, well known and I was having these sick parties and I was making millions of dollars and had houses in LA and San Diego and Vegas and, and I had a jet and I was just like, why would I want to be with one chick when I had this life where I could just do whatever I want and kind of live out my, you know, childhood dreams. How do you view marriage? Look, I mean, it, it really depends on the person and their situation. Um, for a rich guy, I feel like it's a pretty foolish endeavor usually just because, I mean, you know, one of the things I like to say a lot is it's like, you know, they're betting half their net worth, they're gonna love the girl forever, first of all. And second of all, I just feel like marriage, a lot of times it just ruins a relationship. Like people will be getting along great and they're having a good time. And now, um, you know, because they're, you know, trapped in together, like the one, you know, starts getting fat or, you know, she doesn't give a shit anymore or whatever. And then because of that, the whole thing kind of like spirals downhill and the other person doesn't care and there's animosity built up and it's, you know, this snowball effect that wouldn't otherwise happen in a normal relationship. But when you're locked in, then it's like, you know, you have to live with that person and, you know, your opportunity cost for breaking up is half your money. You know, you find all these people in, in relationships that they shouldn't otherwise be in had it not have been the marriage. And I don't see marriage helping too many relationships. So I guess that's my thoughts on the whole marriage thing. Could you ever see getting married? Um, after saying all that, still possibly yes. <laughs> as fucking crazy as that is. You really? I mean, I'm look, I, you know, I don't like to say things are impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing as a gambler that you learn is that, you know, there's a lot of things that you think are impossible that really aren't, you know? So for me, when I tell you something is 0%, it's never gonna happen. I rarely say that about things. Um, so for me to tell you something's never gonna happen, like there has to be no version of it happening. I mean, what if I meet a girl that's, you know, amazing in every way, shape or form? What do you think the chances are of it happening? Hmm. You know, <sighs> It's really hard to give a percentage because if you would have asked me 10 years ago, what are the chances that I'd be in this position right now? I would have said super low. I would actually give you a higher percentage than what I actually think it is just because I don't know where I'm gonna be in five years. I don't know mentally, like, I mean, look, when you're 25, you think you know everything, right? So as you get older, you figure out like, you know, less and less and your perspective changes as the time goes on. And so it's, yeah, it's really hard for me to give a number. How true is it that you slept with nine women in one day in Cabo? No, it's definitely true. How? No, it wasn't, it wasn't nine women. No, it was, it was, it was, I had sex nine times. Okay. It was I think, four or five women. Okay. Four, I think four, maybe five. Anyways, six, I had sex nine times. And I remember the ninth time it was like, you know, this was like work. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. And you do it while you're trying to like 
set a personal best? No, <laughs> it wasn't even. Well, I don't know. It wasn't even that. It was almost like it's like a billionaire is walking down the street and there's a hundred dollars on the street. He's just always gonna pick it up. You know, it's like I didn't need to have sex at night time, but hot chick wanted to have sex and. I don't know. How often have you used prostitutes? Not that often, just because, you know, for me, the appeal is that a chick's into me, so it kind of, like, takes it away. I, don't, I mean, are you talking about sex, right? Not blowjobs? I, I mean, either either or. Yeah, I mean, blowjobs probably, I don't know, maybe, like, 50 times my life. Um, sex, sex definitely less, um, and not recently. Um, it's just, it, I mean, now it's so easy to get laid, it's it's ridiculous. Because of the fame? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big part of it. Because um, I think, I mean, look, I got laid a lot in college, and I wasn't really rich or famous then. I mean, obviously not to the magnitude now, but um, the money, you know, depending on how you use your money, money could be like five or like maybe 25x, I think. Because if you really use your money and just setting up your life right and whatever, right. Um, you can, I think at least, you can definitely 25x what you normally would do. And but fame is like on a different level. What, what are your boundaries? I don't know. Look, I always try and do the right thing. Honestly, um, I don't feel like sleeping with a lot of girls is like a wrong thing. Like some mm -hmm. people might think that. Um, I think as long as you're honest, um, you know. Tell about how you lost your virginity when you were in eighth grade. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Not one of my finest moments. Uh, but it was a hooker in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. How did that even happen? Uh, well, so I was in military boarding school and uh, I had this guy. Uh, you were what, 13 or 14 years old? Something? It was eighth grade, so I think 13. Yeah. And I had this Mexican roommate and... Um, I don't know. He, I forget what it was. Maybe Thanksgiving. There was like some break that we got, and he's like, "Hey, you know, you want to come down with me?" And I was like, "Where, you know, where do you want to go?" He's like, "Mexico City." And I'm, f no, I got a big mansion, and you know, we got a, you know, I got a limo driver and a chef, and I have my own house, and we can get dynamite. And I was like, "Oh, if we can get dynamite." I'm like, "How about guns?" He's like, "Oh, I don't know about the guns, but maybe like a crossbow." And I was like, "All right, you know, that's good enough. I'm in." So we ended up going down there, and yeah, one of the things we did was went to a whorehouse. I didn't even know it was a whorehouse. Just a bunch of like, you know, hot chicks. And yeah, I was like, I didn't even really know how to have sex at the time. It was like back before, you know, they had all the porn on the internet, you know, so it's like, it's, a chick had to, you know, teach what to do. Really? Like, yeah. Yeah. It was like kind of embarrassing. I didn't really like know how to have sex. I mean, I don't know. I was 13, 14 years old. And, you know, at the time, like we had a playboy, you know, so it's like, okay, like, you know, you see some stuff, but you know, Playboy's not really, you know, the same thing, so. How would you describe what life was like for you growing up? Um, well, it kind of changed, right? Because initially growing up, I lived, um, I think it was a two-bedroom house, and I shared a room with my little brother, and then um, I think it was, I want to say when I was eight, we moved into um, a four- or five-bedroom house. It was like a nice, I think it was probably... I don't know, million dollar, one or two million dollar house in a nice neighborhood. And then my dad, um, he built a 44,000 square foot house with, you know, 26 bathrooms, indoor basketball court. And so that was a little different. And he also went to jail for a year in federal prison. And that was when I was in second grade. So, yeah, I mean, there, you know, the life, 
you know, the, the life was definitely a lot different. I mean, look, I got kicked out of school, seventh grade, so I ended up living with my aunt and uncle. Eighth grade, I was in military school. Ninth grade, I went to Utah um, to live in a completely Mormon city. Tenth grade, I went back to Tampa Prep. Eleventh grade, I went to a public school. Then halfway through, went to another public school in Utah. Then three days into my senior year, I got thrown in jail. So, you know, childhood was a little different from year to year. To, to what extent do you th- would you characterize your life growing up as being happy? Hard to say. You know, like what what, what is like the average? I would say. Uh, I would say I wasn't like super happy as a kid. Maybe like five being average, maybe like a four. So explain what led to you getting thrown in jail your senior year. Um, well, um, a machine gun and a shotgun in my vehicle on school grounds would be probably what led to that. <laughs> So. Like, what, what are you thinking going into that? Um, no, you can call me an idiot. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, you're a senior in high no. school at this point. So, I mean, that's not like... Yeah, yeah, no, no. You kind of, it's, it's a valid question. So I um, I had all this shit, uh in Minnesota. That's where we did our summer. And uh, so I threw all this stuff in my car, and I went down to um, to Utah at the time. We were living in Sandy. Um which is uh, like a suburb of Salt Lake. Anyway, so I brought all the stuff down there and I had the guns in the car and I unpacked the rest of the stuff and I left the guns in there. And uh, I don't know, I mean, a part of it was, you know, probably being a insecure kid. You know, I thought it was cool to have a machine gun in my car. And I didn't really associate the school parking lot being that it was like a half a mile away from school is like being considered school. And the way they categorized it was, I might as well have had this thing in my locker, you know, and this was right after Columbine happened, which is kind of bad timing, if you will. So the perfect storm of all that, um, well, that and me being an honest idiot, uh, the cop asked me. Wait, what led to the cop even coming? So I took a kid to school and, and he saw it in the car and he went around and told everybody and then the cop came up and asked me, or I think it was a principal, somebody asked me, I forget uh-huh. who it was, and then a cop said, hey, do you have any guns in your car? And I said, well, yeah, I got a couple guns in my car. He said, do you mind if I search it? And at the time, being an idiot, I was like, oh yeah, no problem. Thinking that if I was just honest, you know. And it's funny because, I, you know, that's you know, a perfect example of like a lesson that my dad should have taught me is like, you really don't get rewarded for your honesty. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is, you know, life lessons. Why do you believe that one of the reasons that you live the way you do now is because of a lack of attention paid to you growing up? Um, well, I think a lot of people now, you know, especially a lot of these women that focus, you know, on social media and have to post a ton and, you know, do like 20 posts every week and, you know, just, I feel like a lot of them need that attention, you know, and social media is kind of like a form of validation, right? It's like you post a picture, it's like, oh, how many people like it? You know, what are they saying? You know, it's all this stuff. So I feel like a lot of people get caught up in that. And so for me, like when I was doing it, you know, I was, I was no different, you know, when, I, when I'd post a picture and, you know, X amount of people would like it, I'd, you know, be like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, the, these people, you know, dig my life. And so a little bit of that you know, validation and attention is addictive. Um, especially, you know, like you said, you know, when you grow up and you didn't have a ton of it. So, um, that was a piece. What do you think you learned from your dad? 
Um, I mean, I definitely learned a lot of things from him. Um, probably not as much as I uh, should have, but I mean, one good example is, um, uh, you know, just like time, value, money, um, what your what your time is worth. Um, I mean, a good example of that, you know, this is one I like to give a lot just because it really stands out in my mind was my mom asked me to make my bed. And I was like, well, you know, dad doesn't make his bed. And she, you know, turns to him. And she's like, oh, why don't you make your bed? You know, be a good example for your son. And he's like, okay, I make $10,000 an hour. He's like, I pay a maid $25 an hour to make my bed. He's like, so you're asking me to spend $9,975 to make my bed. He goes, how stupid is that? You know, it's just like a conversation that like most parents don't have in front of a kid, you know, and it's like, and it seems crazy, but it makes a ton of sense, right? And it's like, that's just like a very good example of like how a rich, successful person would look at a situation like that. You went to jail when you were growing up for a year. How did you find out? Um, well, it was, it was like I was driving into school. It's kind of up because like everybody else knew it was like front page news all these newspapers and, and, uh, and to give this context really successful businessman yeah. and then the newspaper headlines are and i think this is like the late 80s uh he's indicted for like tax and security fraud yeah yeah i don't know all the charges it was like yeah some 13d violations stock parking it was like him and michael milken and they were like the you know the guys that were being made an example of and it was a time where a lot of these companies were undervalued. So you have a company that, you know, to give an example, let's say the company has, you know, a billion dollars worth of assets that just, you know, like, okay, let's say the land, the, you know, the, the, the facility, the, you know, the, the products, whatever, it's worth a million bucks. Stock on the company is worth 700 million. So, you know, you buy 51% of the company, you have controlling interest, you sell off all the stuff, all the shareholders make money, the stock price goes up when you're buying it, and everybody wins. The only person that loses is the CEO of the company, right? And I mean, some people get fired, but at the end of the day, like, you know, jobs are recreated because, you know, there's another need for it. And uh, so, you know, people, they kind of like villainize this stuff um, because these CEOs that were getting fired that, you know, were flying on a private jet to Aspen and then would have a second private jet fly their dog to Aspen because they didn't want them on the same aircraft. They wanted them there, you know, and were, you know, running these companies very inefficiently and taking huge salaries and were also the ones that were donating, you know, to the people in power. Um, you know, those people made a lot of noise about, you know, this stuff because it was, you know, threatening their, their life, right? Well, their livelihood, whatever. So, you know, they had a lot of influence. And so they, you know, really pushed for a crackdown on these corporate takeover guys. And so... And, and that was what your dad was doing a lot of... Exactly. Yeah, that's how he made all of his money. So anyways, the, the, the whole thing was there was a big push to, you know, crack down on this stuff. And he got busted. Michael Milken got busted. And there are some other people. And... Um, yeah, he, uh, the, the government, I think they made a, they, they, I think it was like a $62 million judgment against him, something like that. So how did you find out he was going to jail? We were, uh, we were driving into school and he just, yeah, on the way to school, like he never drove me to school. So I was like, oh, that's kind of odd. And he just, yeah, I'm going to be going away. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, oh, well, you know, we didn't get this appeal. And, and in the whole time he had been telling me like, you know, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to jail. Cause it was, you know, in the newspapers, the kids were asking me. So I'd ask him and he's like, oh no, definitely not. He was always like this crazy, like eternal optimist. So we're going to school and he's like, yeah, by the way, I'm going to jail. And, um, I mean, I think he put it a little bit more eloquently than that, but anyways, it was, uh, how'd you take it? 
that sucked, man. I, you know, you got to go to school and, and all these kids are making fun of you and your dad's going to jail. It's like, I was kind of traumatizing moment. But you're having your kids. Like, how yeah. old were you? Yeah, as a kid, it's like, you know, traumatized. You're like eight years old. Yeah. Like, now I'd be like, oh, well, f you. You still made 400 million that year. You know, suck it. <laughs> but, uh, but at the time, you're like, oh, my dad's a criminal. It's like, it's horrible. So um, later on, like, give me the play-by-play -play of the FBI kicking down the door. Okay, yeah. Now, the, so that was a whole different incident. So um, you're going to flash forward now. I'm, I'm going through SEAL training. And, and well, the instructor pulled me out of training. He goes, oh, Bill Zarian, I hear you're a millionaire. You got all this money, huh, Bill Zarian? And, you know, and I was like kind of low-key at the time. So I was like real curious. She pulls me into the, the you know, lawyer's office. And basically the deal was my dad had been in, um, they had, well, they called them diesel therapy. So they were shipping them from maximum security prison to maximum security prison all through Florida. So like Miami um, and even like up in like, uh, I think like Alabama, like, so they're sending him around and the judge had, had basically put him in contempt of court for not revealing his offshore assets. Um, and so the judge is basically like, and you know, this is because they had the like $62 million judgment against him and, and he he's paid a like nickel to he, avoid giving anything. He to the government. A nickel of yeah. it, I don't think. So they're shipping him around from maximum security prison to maximum security prison for eight months. He's in these terrible places. And my mom is, um, my mom is getting freaked out because they're telling her that they're going to send her to jail too. And it was like my brother and my grandmother, they were at the house and the FBI like kicked in the doors, like guns drawn, like flashbangs, like all this crazy My brother's like 17 and my grandmother's like 65, like practically gave her a heart attack, you know, and they're like coming there with machine guns <laughs> and shit, right? Like, you know, they go in there, like they're going into raid Pablo Escobar, right? And it's like my brother and my grandma and they go in there, like take all the files and the computers to like try and, you know, see if he's hiding like offshore assets. And anyways, at the same time, concurrently, I'm going through SEAL training and they pull me out and they basically say like, look, here's the deal. We're sending, you know, your mom's going to go to jail. Um, you know, your dad's in prison and he's going to stay there unless you sign over a 30 year trust fund. And, um, and for me, I was just like, well, you know, I don't really like care about the money. I'm just like, you know, I didn't want my dad to be in jail. And so the government knows how much the trust funds for at, at like, this point and all all of that like the yeah yeah so they they wanted a third of um of mine so for me i was like okay sure so i signed it off my dad was so pissed he like refused to talk to me for you know six months or eight months he's like i've been in jail for this whole time like you sign off the thing and you know give him this money and 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 i, and I get it like it hurt his you know position of negotiation if they already have you know this and you know whatever so I guess I kind of f***ed him over. I didn't know. It was like inadvertent. You know, I didn't know any better. You know, you're in jail for eight months, and now they basically extort your son who's, you know, going through training and has got nothing to do with it. You know what I mean? So, I, like, as I get older, you know, you step back and you look at, you know, situations, you know, through other people's lens, and it makes a lot more sense. And, and so I guess after, like, 25 years of the government pursuing that, you know, 60-plus million, they just gave up. Uh, how, how was he able to avoid like paying it <laughs> I, you know i he definitely paid some he, he there there was a settlement for sure um mm -hmm. and in and part of it was he gave up the house in uh in tampa and there was there was money paid and 
and stock and stuff like that. Um, so he settled with them. Um, I just, I don't know the, you know, the details of all of it. How do you think it impacted your parents' lives? Like just having to go through oh, all it, of that? Oh, it ruined it. I mean, it was, it was so? horrible. I mean, he's been, you know, basically like having to live in St. Kitts and battling with the government for 20 something years. And, you know, you're basically fighting a fight that you can't win. And to me, that would be sh to spend that much time of your, you know, your life fighting with, with the government, you know, especially considering like what a patriot he was. I mean, he volunteered to go into Vietnam when nobody else wanted to go. He's a Green Beret and was the youngest officer commissioned since the Korean War. Two bronze stars, a fucking silver star for valor. You know what I mean? Like the guy's like a war hero, like, you know, fought for his country. And, you know, so for, you know, a person like that to then have to battle with the, you know, the, the country that he, you know, fought for and did all that stuff. Look, I, I mean, I get it, you know, it sucks. The trust funds, uh, mm. I guess you were entitled to one when you turned 30, one when you turned 35, um, more or less than you had already made on your own. I gave it all back, so. Really? Yeah, uh, I gave it to my brother. Why? Uh, I just, I don't know, I didn't need it, didn't want it, didn't care. How satisfying was it to you to like know you had the ability to do that? Oh, well, I didn't really think about it. To me, it was like not a big deal. I just, I don't know, I was like a weird person. I never wanted something from somebody um, without being able to kind of reciprocate, I guess. So hey, my dad had like lost me some money on some deals. So I just, you know, like I, I took, I took like a little bit from that and gave the rest away. And that, I mean, completely goes against what your detractors would say too, because like, you know, I mean, you read the detractors or comments they've made that, uh, oh, nobody can make a hundred million dollars or whatever it is playing poker. He, uh, yeah. you know, he's just, you yeah, know, poker is kind of yeah, he he, sucks the, the way he says he makes his money, but he's really gotten it from the, uh, you know, trust funds and you didn't, you didn't take it. No, that's the thing. Like you have to remove your ego from these situations, you know? So for me, I just let people talk about my poker and, and that I was bad and that I, you know, had a trust fund because that was all very helpful for me to mm -hmm. get into these games. So it's been so long that I'm just used to, you know, I, I like, I never cared if people thought that I was good. I never gave a you know, if, you know, how people thought that I got my money. I still don't. I don't give a They think I, you know, got it all from a trust. I, I don't I mean, care. not at like, all. Like, I mean, somebody, if you've like earned it through, you know, your own intellect and hard work, it doesn't bother you at all that there's like some out there that like think that you, it was just handed to you? No, I, I don't really, you know, the thing is like, there's so many people praising me that, you know, some of that I feel like I don't deserve and I feel like, I, you know, some of the negative I don't deserve. I just, I don't even like concern myself with the opinions, you know what I mean? Cause I mean, look, I, I, I would if, if it was very negative and like knock on wood, like I've been going out, you know, in public and whatever for, you know, five years and every single person that's come up to me has been super positive right. and super cool. And so that's amazing. I mean, it sucks that I've lost all of my privacy pretty much and I can't go anywhere without, you know, people coming up to me and, you know, wanting pictures and this and that. Unless you shave the beard. Yeah, that would probably be my out. Right. Um, but so that, that definitely really sucks, except for, you know, the getting laid piece. But anyways, taking that out, it's, you know, it, it sucks. I mean, you get free whatever but the net is probably a negative i mean there's cool things you get into parties whatever but i guess at the end of the day um you know i think the uh 
the fame is probably in that negative. Going to the, the SEAL training days, how is it that you could have had the opportunity to be a disabled veteran and everything that comes with that, the benefits, the money, and you instead decide to go into SEAL training? Well, I started off injured in my first class and I had gotten so banged up that, I mean, after finishing Hell Week with stress fractures going in, um, that I was supposed to let my legs heal. And because they didn't let my legs heal, when I went to uh, Okinawa, I got off the boat and I just, I went into medical and I asked them to look at my legs. I ran for like two miles and just destroyed them even more just because I was just so sick of the military, I just wanted to get out. And they gave me what I wanted, they were gonna get me out because um, my legs were just and it had been, you know, they'd been broken for, you know, eight months or whatever. But you hated the military that bad that you would destroy your legs oh, yeah. to I get out. I was so pissed. I mean, I, I, you know, I had done everything that I was supposed to do. I made it through Hell Week with broken legs. Like, I just, I felt like I just got so, like, railroaded. And and, grant, and not not like really in the SEAL training program because I went in there and I was unprepared and I was for sure not like, you know, I, I, I shouldn't have, I, I was gonna graduate because like I just never was gonna quit mm -hmm. and I was, you know, just gonna finish the program. But I, at the time, like wasn't mature enough and I wouldn't have made a good SEAL. And so I, I don't blame them for getting me out of there. My issue was really in the, you know, the way the ship handled it and like taking me out to sea when like my legs were clearly not healed and like I was supposed to be on limited duty. And so they were going to kick me out, but they took them so long to process it that my legs had healed. And so at that point, I just, you know, put in a request to go back and everybody thought that I was so crazy. I remember like, I remember going in and, and my commanding officer was like, Bill Zarian, he goes, uh, you're supposed to be medically discharged from the military here soon. And you want me to approve a request for you to go into SEAL training? I said, yes, sir. And he goes, you know how stupid that is. He goes, <laughs> he goes, he goes, he goes, you realize that we are going to be paying you disability and we're saying that you're disabled and you want me to approve a request for you to go to the <laughs> hardest military training in the world. He goes, are you, he goes, are you stupid? He goes, do we need to give you a psych discharge as well? He goes, what's the matter with you? And it was just funny. Like at the time, I'm just like, you know, standing there like, you know, like this is, you know, my commanding officer. I'm so brainwashed and I didn't even see the humor in it. I was just like, oh, no, sir. Like, I, you know, I, I'd really like the opportunity, <laughs> sir. And, you know, he's just, you know, having, having, you know, at it. Anyway, so I ended up going back. And, yeah, I, I was two days before graduation, got rolled all the way back to the beginning, did the whole thing again, and then got kicked out. That actually, to me, is one of the things that does irritate me is when people think that I, like, didn't serve four years. Like, cause I, I was in the military for four years. Like, I served four years. I did 510 days of SEAL training. Like, I finished the whole program twice. Like, I went through Hell Week twice. Like, I did all that stuff. And while, like, you know, I wasn't a Navy SEAL, and I'm not expecting people to, like, you know, call me a Navy SEAL. It's just, like, you know, when people say that, like, I didn't serve in the military or that, you know, like, I quit in SEAL training or, you know what I mean? Like, any of that stuff, like, that actually does f***ing piss me off because I was two days before graduating. Like I did the whole thing and I did the whole thing two times. Well, a little more than two times. So how do you go through it a second time? And you're talking about you went through hell week twice. Yeah, I finished two hell weeks and I was actually in three different classes. So the first time I made it, you know, it was like three or four weeks after hell week. And then I got rolled back. Second time I went, you know, all the way through the entire course, two days for graduation, then got rolled back all the way be to the beginning of dive phase, which is basically, you know, like I did four months of the training again. And then at the end, then they just admin dropped me. Explain what Hell Week entailed. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's five and a half days and no sleep and you're running. I think it's like a total of 144 miles, like telephone poles and boats. And I mean, it's, it's pretty grueling training. I got hypothermia a lot. Um, it was tough. I mean, you're wet and sandy the whole time. So you're chafing your, you know, nipples are bleeding. My toenails popped off from the feet being so swollen. Like, I mean, it's, it's no joke. You know, it's, you just, you got to really want it, you know, bad. Of those two hell weeks you went through, is there a moment or two that most sticks out to you? Um, yeah, I think, that, I think Steel Pier was probably one. That's where it's like, it's like three in the morning. It's probably like 40 degrees outside and they strip you down to your underwear and or naked. I forget what it was, underwear and naked or something, but you're on a steel pier and they spray down the water and they get hurricane fans that are blowing on you. And it's just, it's miserable. It's really cold. And what, like looking back, you don't think you graduated. Why? Um, well, so the second time I went through, I'd already done it and I was kind of like going through cocky and I just figured if I don't quit and I pass all my stuff, like they can't kick me out. But I, I didn't think they could like just drop you, you know, my OIC, the officer in charge of my class. I didn't really have a lot of respect for him. We kind of like butted heads. And so I probably like wasn't like the best team player in that class. And, you know, they gave me bad evals and probably picked up on that. And you know, so it makes sense. Um, when I got kicked out, I was so over the whole thing that like, to me, in my mind, it's like, okay, I've like checked this box. Like I, you know, I, I did SEAL training. Like I, I finished this, you know? So to me, it was like, okay, I, you know, I'd climb Mount Everest, you know, like I'd, I'd done what I came to do. So I said, I, I didn't really care too much at the end. All right. So tell the story uh, in detail about what led you to having two heart attacks. Okay. So, um, I was uh, I was on a ski trip with some of my fraternity brothers, and uh, we were partying. And um, I remember I like met this chick in the lift line, and uh, we go back to her house. We're all partying, and you know I'm banging this chick, and I, I like I remember I took a shower, and like I think I like we had sex again, and I get this call. Like I hadn't even gone to sleep yet. It was like six or seven a.m., and my buddies were like, "Hey, we're going to snowboarding." You know, like, let's let's go for one last rip before we get the flight. And I was like, all right, cool. Snowboarded all day long and then came back and I was just sick. Like, I just wasn't feeling good. It's thrown up. Just felt horrible. We take a bus to the airport and I ended up getting some um, some paramedic in the in the uh, airport to, like, give me a, an IV bag or whatever. And, like, he basically said that if you hooked it up that I wasn't going to be able to fly. And so I ended up, like, you know, telling him, like, look, I'm a medic in the military, which it wasn't, <laughs> right? So I feel better, get on, the, get on the plane, go to Vegas. And, I mean, I'm still not feeling good, but I'm, like, passing by the poker tables, and I just, like, can't even help myself. I can start gambling. And I still, like, haven't slept. It's been, like, two, three days or whatever. I had some buddies show up and like, hey, like, you know, let's go to the strip club. We got these girls and, you know, they want to go with us and we got all these drugs. And I was like, all right, you know, sounds fun. So it's like went and doing coke and now now we're, uh, we're, sm we're smoking weed and we get to the strip club and, you know, this first stripper, you know, comes over and she's like, if you want to hang out, like I can get off out of here in, you know, like 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever. So I tell her, okay, sure. And I hit up my buddy. I'm like, hey, like, give me a Viagra. Have you, had you used Viagra before? I never used Viagra before. So I didn't know anything about it or the dosing. And I hadn't slept for three days. So he gives me, you know, 100 milligram one. I take the whole thing and I, you know, 
waits like you know three minutes and on coke it feels like it's been hours I'm like it's not working and the guy's like bro he's like relax you know what i mean it's been like three minutes it takes a while I'm like, give me another one just in case you know he's like don't take this he's like you know he's like i'll give you another one but you can you know take it later like gives me the pill and i think i took like a half and then like you know i didn't feel anything you know i didn't know i figured like you know two two whole pills you know i, I figured the normal dose is one pill so like two pills is no big deal right and what is a normal dose? well i didn't realize that like a normal dose of viagra i think is like 10 or 25 milligrams right and i had the 100 so i'm just like take way too much of this shit, go back to this girl for you know i don't know 45 minutes and zero chance of me getting off i just like threw in the towel and went and took a shower won't go down for like an hour or something anyways long story short kicked the girl out eight room service went out gambled some more i bet on the football game and i went and ate mexican food with a buddy of mine i just uh after this mexican food i came back to the hotel and this was like day four maybe like one hour of sleep and I just started having this pain in my shoulder, which to me, like, wasn't indicative of anything. Like, I just thought, okay, I got like a shoulder pain. So I'm like doing some push ups, trying to like move my shoulder around. Like, can't really figure out what the deal is. And then I call my, like, I'm trying to sleep, but I just like, I can't sleep. I have this shoulder pain. So I call my mom, like, hey, get the family doctor on the phone. While I'm waiting, I'm just like getting short of breath. And I'm just like, okay, like, something's wrong. So I call down to the front desk of the thing and they tell they you know tell me the hospital is closest. So I put in my GPS like 10 minutes away. So I'm like, Fuck it, I'll just drive down there. Went down there, kept me in the waiting room forever. By the time I finally see this doctor, I like can barely breathe. And he's like, holy shit, like you're having a heart attack. I've been in the waiting room for like 50 minutes. And so finally he gives me the nitroglycerin. He like puts me in there. I'm like, oh my God, like I'm gonna die for sure. And that was it. The next day, then I have uh, I have another heart attack in the hospital, and they were like ignoring it again. And I like call my dad. I'm like, hey, like come down here. These stupid mother like don't want to do anything. And sure enough, they checked, and I was like, I had a second heart attack. But like, this was like the most incompetent bunch of doctors you'd ever seen. So your parents are there, and your girlfriend's there. Oh, you want the awkward and, moment with uh, the doctor? Oh God. So. <laughs> So my doctor comes in and like my mom's there, my dad's there, the girlfriend, like all the people are there. And he's like, okay, like I need to know like all the drugs that you've done. It was Conrad Murray. I think Michael he's in, Jackson's yeah, I think he's doctor. in jail right now. Killed Michael Jackson. So, well, <laughs> that's a little harsh probably, but anyways. So the, so the guy, uh, the guy's like, you know, asking me for my parents and I was just like, oh, you know, like, well, I smoked some pot. And he's like, what else? It's like, oh, you know, I might, I might have done a little, you know, drinking. And he's like, it's, you know, important that, you know, you tell us everything that you did. It's like, ah, I did some cocaine. And he's like, and? And I was like, and I did some Viagra. And like my girlfriend's, my dad, at this point, my dad's like looked over at me like, what the f with the cocaine? And now I said the Viagra and my ex-girlfriend's like, st like screaming, like, what the f did you take Viagra for? And I'm like trying to answer his questions and these guys, you know, it's like the worst, like the hot seat of all time. I'm surprised I didn't have a third heart attack. And the doctor's like, how much did you take? I'm like 200 milligrams. He's like, holy shit. He's like 200 milligrams. He's like, that's like a crazy amount. And I had no idea. I'm just like, like, what do you, you know, like, I, I don't know anything about Viagra. He's like, yeah, he's like the typical dose is 25. I'm like, well, how is that possible? The pill was a hundred. I'm like, one pill was a hundred. He's like, well, that's like the maximum like geriatric dose. You know what I mean? I'm just like, all right, well, I guess don't take any Viagra. So. 
And uh, then what you end up doing with your girlfriend in the well, hospital it was my, room? It was my ex. You're... It was my ex girlfriend, but I ended up f-ing her four times in the hospital with like all the cords hooked up. We like smoked two joints in the hospital. My buddy like brought over wine coolers and Chinese food. I'm surprised I didn't die. Like I don't know what these. F- we're thinking like looking back on this and you're thinking oh i just had two heart attacks why not like, i'm thinking what's I'm the- bulletproof tiger man i'm like you even know. after two heart attacks where you thought you were gonna die well i just thought it was because all you know it was like uh, well to me it was, you know because they, they did the angiogram and they said like my heart was fine there's mm-hmm. no like issues so i mean i just like chalked it up as like okay well you know i was you know hadn't slept in four days i'm doing drugs i like ran my body through the ringer yeah. eating the mexican food probably had a lot to do with it <laughs> and i was just like uh, i don't know i and your girlfriend obviously wasn't that mad about the viagra and the- she got over i was in the hospital for like three or four days i think so it was like after it was like after day two um <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Like, well, at that point, I was like, we're oh. talking about three or four months. This is no, like a couple I, days. I know, I know. I, and, I, and they gave me all these pills, and I ended up chucking those after like a week. I don't know. I just, and you were supposed to take those for life, For right? life, yeah. Yeah. This <laughs> uh, shows how little those motherfuckers know. 300 miles, Vegas to Los Angeles in 48 hours on a bike, and you hadn't been on a bike in basically forever. How did the bet come about? Yeah, I didn't even own a bicycle. Um, it was, uh, we were at a poker table and it actually started, um, this guy, Bill Perkins, he bet my brother, God, what was it? It was like, I think he bet him like two or 300,000 and he couldn't go two or three days without saying the word the. And then somehow it like turned into a, you know, talk of like what would be an impossible um, <clears throat> physical feat. And the bike ride was one of the ones that came up and it was a bet that was actually offered to Rick Solomon. Um, and Rick Solomon called up one of his buddies that I guess is like in the Guinness book of world records for doing a lot of stuff. And he asked him and the guy was like, no chance. Like you can't, you can't do this. Like there's no way. And so Rick ended up passing on the bet and it was just like, I don't know, it was eating at me. It was just like one of those things where, like in life, the things that I've regretted are the things that I didn't try. So I talked to these cyclists and like, I remember I called down to a bike shop and I'm like, hey, like, you know, if I want to train for, you know, a 300 mile bike ride, um, you know, like, what, what do I got to do? Like, how long would it take me, you know, if I was like super dedicated? He goes, most people train for three to four months to do a century, which is a hundred mile bike ride. And I'm just like, well, I'm going to do 300. And he's, and I got, and I'm like, and I got 48 hours to do it, you know? And he's like, I don't care if you have a week to do it. He's like, you're not going to ride 300 (laughs) miles on a bike. He goes, you're going to get saddle sores. You know, you're going to mess yourself up. Like you're just, you're not going to be able to sit on the seat. Like you have to like get used to this stuff. And, um, and I'm like, well, listen, I'm like, I'm going to do it. And he's like, well, good luck. And then hung out the phone. And so I went to the gym and I got on the stationary bike and I'll never forget this. I rode for 45 minutes and I like couldn't go anymore. And I was just like, my legs were just on fire. And I like, and I was just like, oh man, like this is, this is rough. Like this is going to be tough. And then Bill calls me up and I was, I remember I was like, kind of like, I was like, I had just taken a Valium or smoked a joint or something. I was like, kind of like, you know, not really like a hundred percent there. And he's like, you want to do the bet? And I'm just like, well, I'm like, dude, I got some like pretty negative feedback on this thing. I was like, why don't you give me three months of training and I'll take the bet. 
And he goes, no, he goes, he goes, I'll give you, you know, a month to train. And I was like, no, no, that's just like not enough time. And he goes, all right, I'll give you um, till the end of next month, which was effectively like five and a half weeks. He's like, but this, like the offer's on the table right now. And I'm just like, dude, like, I'm not like, I'm not sober. Like, let's like talk about this tomorrow. And he's like, no, right now, or the offer's off the table. And I'm like, how much do you want to bet? He's like, 500 grand. I'm like, no, it's not enough. I'm like, I wouldn't even do it for 500 grand. He's like, 600 grand. He's like, right now. He's like, I'm like, bro, I'm like, I'm not sober. Like, I really don't want to like make the bet right now. He's like, 600 grand right now. You have till the end of next month. I was like, you're on. So... I started training. I took it real seriously, and Lance Armstrong reached out and like he came out. And hey, like, so how did how did uh, Lance a- end up getting involved? So he text messaged uh, Joe Rogan and was like, "Hey, like you know, I heard Dan's got this bet, and you know, why don't you see if you know like he'd be interested in me helping him, you know, with the ride and coaching him." And so Joe texted me. He's like, "Hey, like you know, Lance reached out. He wanted to know if you know you'd be open to you know him coaching." And I was like, "Yeah, dude, give him my number. Right. That'd be amazing." So he came out and like, you know, he's like taught me some stuff on the cycling and like, you know, when he came out, I was like, okay, like, you know, so what kind of drugs do I need to do? Like, what's the deal? Right. And, uh, and, and he didn't really like want to talk about that sort of stuff. And I was like, so yeah. and wait, I was, wait, you bring, when you ask him that, what does he say? Well, he just, I don't know. He like really like skirted the question. And I'm just like, man, like I could have anybody like teach me how to pedal a bike. Like I wanted the drug. And, you know? <laughs> and uh, no, but he was like, he was real cool, man. He was, he was real cool. And we went for, for a ride and like we talked strategy and stuff. And I just want to make sure that, because I ended up betting more money on this, this, this bike race. It was like, it, it ended up being like up to like over a million dollars by the end of it. Cause I was like taking on more action. Um, what were the other bets? I mean, there were some crazy ones. One of them was like my plane versus like 250,000. If I died, Rick got my plane and my pilots. Rick Solomon. Yeah. And then if, and if I, and if I didn't die and also completed it, then he had to pay me 250 grand. Um, And so there was, yeah, there was like other side bets too. And then I bet like 50,000 for charity and I ended up like, so Lance, like the one thing that he wanted was like for me to donate to his like children's cancer charity, which I thought was actually real cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the charities that, you know, that's one of the you know types of charities that I like to donate to that and, and, uh, and wounded veterans, but children's cancer is actually probably a better one. So I was like stoked to do that. So I just bet my buddy on the side, 50,000. Um, and then I, and then when I won that, then I just gave that to his charity. What were the some of the highlights from the start to the finish? I mean, I had I had a blowout doing like 30 miles an hour downhill. I mean, that was kind of crazy. And uh, I was like, it was like in the dead of night, just getting passed by tractor trailers and the highway doing like 90 miles an hour. And like, if you've ever driven by those in a car, like they'll move your car. Right. So if they're moving a 5,000 pound car, like imagine what they do to a 200 pound biker. You know, so it's like. There was that, and then you would get hit by like side gusts of wind, and like you know, and there's potholes on the road, and it's like pitch black, and I'm like trying to like go behind this van so I can only see like this short period in front of me, and I did about half the ride like drafting this van, and then I did the other half just without it. Um, and you had a police escort for part, but then another part, 
you did not. On yeah, they the refused highway. to do the highway, which was like the most dangerous part of all. It was cool through the city because like you didn't get jammed up in traffic and right. everyone get hit by cars. So that was a plus. But the highway was like real gnarly. Like there was one where there was like it was going one way and then there was going another way. And there was, you know, and, and there was like a double yellow line and there was a car that came around to pass as there was a car coming and he had like cut through the both of us. And if I didn't have that lead van, he would have hit me for sure. That was cool. Was there a point where you didn't think you were going to be able to do it? I mean, there, I was never really sure that I was going to be able to do it. I mean, I had all these like guys that were like, like the only guy that, that, that thought that I could do it was Lance. It's the only guy. Why'd he think you could? I don't know. He's just an animal, you know, and he probably thinks like, I mean, he thinks like I do, like the human body is just capable of like far more than like people know, you know, and like only guys that have like really pushed themselves beyond like the limits of what they think is possible know that, you know, a lot of people can say that, but until you've actually like, I mean, they say, I mean, that's what one of the things they say in SEAL training is that your body's capable of 10 times what you think that it's capable of. Like a lot of people like say that and hear that or whatever, but like 10 times a lot. And it's, actually true like you're able to do it if you're like mentally tough enough like you can do you can just keep going through those barriers you know like you can just keep breaking through them i know uh you said 10 years ago you would have never imagined where you are today um so obviously this is a difficult question but 10 years from now where do you think you are i mean i would hope that i would be uh you know having, you know, 10,000 different weed dispensary franchises across the United States and have the best concentrate and edible line there is. And, you know, part of these dispensaries, I'm gonna have hot girls in there and I think it's gonna be a cool experience. It's fun, man. Like I've, I've climbed a lot of the mountains that I want to climb. So I think the next thing is to kind of build an empire and do something with the, with the brand and, you know, kind of like show the world how you know, this social media actually is far better than, you know, these traditional forms of advertisement where, you know, you're watching a TV show and, you know, the commercials come on and you hit mute or people mentally tune them out. Like you have people on their cell phones 70% of the day, like you have a captive audience that, you know, as long as you're not, you know, selling out like a lot of these guys that don't do anything for the dollar, as long as you're doing stuff that you believe in and you're promoting like quality products and stuff like that, I feel like there's huge value in the, you know, social media advertisement stuff. Um, and I also want to do like f***ed up commercials. Like I want to do like, you know, for, you know, a supplement company, you know, if I were to do a commercial for them, I'd have, you know, there's the guy and, you know, he's kind of frustrated and, you know, he's, you know, not satisfying his wife and he comes home and like, the kids playing video games and his, you know, friends kind of like making fun of the dad and he goes to work and, you know, the coworkers are talking shit to him and, you know, the typical commercial would be like, you know, he takes these supplements and now he comes back and he satisfies his wife and his kid respects him. And like, I just want to do like a fucked up version of that where like he takes these supplements and now he's like fucking the boss's wife and he like beats the shit out of like his little kid's friend. And so I want to kind of like do some marketing like that, where I don't have to conform to these, you know, these big businesses that have HR and PR and, you know, they just do this typical, boring, cookie cutter nonsense. Like I want to like kind of revolutionize advertising a little bit and do some of that.
Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for listening to my interview with Dan Bilzerian. While hanging out in Vegas, we took a ride in his souped-up ATVs and stopped by a workout with Floyd Mayweather Jr. You can see all of that and more at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.